This is Market Scales Knowledge is Power with your host, Brandon Fluger. Hello and welcome. In this episode of Knowledge is Power, we'll be exploring several topics that shed light on one particular leader's pivotal moments in his exciting career, major learning moments he's had along the way, and of course, how his leadership in the finance and nonprofit world has shaped the way young people have approached mentorships, internships to launch their careers. As always, you'll want to stick around for the end as we have a special sign-off ahead of next week's episode. Joining me today is Kevin Davis, founder and executive director of First Workings, a nonprofit that works with public high schools in New York City to identify talented students and either connect them with mentorships or internships at corporations like Morgan Stanley and NASDAQ and more. He has nearly three decades of experience in the finance industry, and he notably led MS Global's brokerage division and grew its profits from $27 million to $275 million before hitting a $4 billion IPO in 2007. Kevin, welcome. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Kevin, well, I'm excited to talk with you. It's quite an impressive background uh, coming from the finance world, being so successful and leading different teams and what it means to um, you know, climb that ladder and, and be successful in that industry to going into a nonprofit world where you're building a, and constructing a whole new team, working with different types of backgrounds and personalities outside of the finance world, perhaps, um, and really focusing on something that's probably gotten you um, or, or helped you along the way, which is mentorships or internships, that work experience and uh, the personal relationships along the way. Um, so we're going to unpack that. Um, so I'd like to start out, just tell us a little bit more about Kevin Davis. You've begun a journey in the world of nonprofit after an illustrious career on Wall Street. Uh, we're excited to dive into that transition, uh, but let's, let's peel back a few layers and learn what forces really shaped you into the leader you are today. How did you get your start in the world of finance? What led you to start the nonprofit of First Workings? Okay, so I started my career at uh, really um, by accident uh, at the Chicago Board of Trade, which at the time was the world's largest uh, futures and commodities exchange. Uh, and I was uh, at the very bottom of the totem pole. I was a runner, um, and uh, it was very, you know, very exciting times. Um, I say I came upon it by accident. I had originally got to Chicago um, as an intern in the menswear fashion business, which was my sort of family connection. Um, and uh, my roommate, he worked at the Chicago Board of Trade. And one day I went to meet him for lunch and I came across this exchange, which was rocking and rolling, people in different colored jackets and using hand signals to trade. Um, and I, you know, my job was crawling into this roaring pit on my hands and knees, taking trading cards uh, and then pulling them out and then key punching them into the, the uh, what I guess today would be considered ancient software. And then uh, that was really a paid internship. And you know, I, that my first boss, um, uh, he was a pretty tough guy. Uh, in Chicago. And uh, right from the start, I guess I learned my first lesson, which was to treat people, always treat people the way you yourself would wish to be treated. Um, uh, I, you know, my first day, the guy sends me out to get a, a BLT and hold the mayo. And I came back, I didn't know what he meant. So I went and got the BLT and then I come back, he said, hey, you know, 
What's with the mail? And he threw the sandwich in my face and told me to go out and get him the right sandwich. And, uh, you know, I didn't answer back. In those days, back in 1982, uh, you know, when you were in internship, you took the view that you're being paid to learn. And so um, that was a very interesting and fun experience. Uh, after my rent and my train fare, I lived on $5 a day. And I used to eat very largely uh, at happy hour, um, where you'd get like a full buffet of food. And I never at that point understood how anybody could go hungry in America because I thought, well, why don't they just go to happy hours and, you know, eat, eat all the burgers and ribs they could get their hands on. So uh, after about six months, I was uh, head, I actually went back to the parent company in the UK where I really started, uh, which were, you know, my, my, my first 20 years were in London, which were the formative years of my career. And, you know, initially uh, I worked for two different companies and I would say that I learned more from my boss's mistakes than I learned from their successes. And it wasn't until I got to a company called EDNF Man, which was, in addition to being a major commodities uh, trader, was beginning uh, its futures brokerage business. Uh, and I went in there to build uh, interest rate futures. And um, I had a, an amazing mentor called Bob Oddy, uh, who taught me different kinds of things. You know, I remember the first thing he taught me was the old bull, young bull story, where, you know, <laughs> there's two bulls sitting at the top of the hill and uh, they look into the meadow and they see all these uh, beautiful cows and the young bull says, let's uh, race down there and get ourselves some cows. And the old bull says, uh, why don't we walk down there and get all the cows? And so uh, that taught me um, that uh, it was better to sort of uh, have a slow but deliberate process in the way in which you would approach business. And I tried to uh, stick to that all along the way. As I rose the greasy pole there and ended up running the entire brokerage business, I was very fortunate to have my second mentor, a guy called Stanley Fink, who really was demonstrative of the fact that you could be uh, an incredible success in finance without uh, necessarily being uh, ruth ruthless and hard ass and um, you know, taking advantage of people. He was a, a, a real gentleman, and he very fortunately gave me the chance to grow as a person, to grow the business, um, and I, re you know, I really loved those years. And then ultimately, the division that I built and uh, um, and uh, whose profits I'd grown considerably, uh, we took public on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, in 2007, I rang the bell. It was all very exciting. And then it really was the beginning of the financial crisis. Bear Stearns went bust a few months later, and then Lehman Brothers. And these were times of incredible turmoil in the markets. And, you know, in, in the futures brokerage business, uh, one of the lessons I was taught back in Chicago was, you know, bad news is good news because Bad news made markets move, and um, moving markets uh, made uh, your customers trade more, uh, and you know consequently made you earn more. Um, so, going back to man, I started out in interest rate futures, 
but then when I became the, the uh, head of the whole division, I found myself running what was then the world's largest energy brokerage business. Um, I actually did a great deal of business with uh, companies in Texas, most notably Enron. Um, and I, but I also covered all, all kinds of commodities and um, ultimately equity derivatives as well. You know, I met people from all over the world. I probably traveled, I would say, 10 nights a month. I was away from home, but I ended up, uh, we, we owned businesses in 14 different countries and I had 28 plus different regulators uh, to deal with plus rating agencies. And I, I think one of the things that uh, you learn when you, again, rise up through an organization is that your skill set has to evolve and change. Uh, so I went to, I, I started out um, trying to get as many customers as I possibly could. Then I ended up hiring teams that had customers. And then we ended up buying virtually every one of our rivals in our space. Um, and along the way, as I say, we treated everybody as we wanted to be treated. Uh, in America, unlike the UK, when you buy a business, you don't have to pay off people that you let go or you have to pay them off minimally. But in the UK, we had a policy of paying one month a year severance. Um, and there were a number of advantages to that. The most important one being that people, if they were going to get taken over, uh, staff in a company that was uh, vulnerable to being bought, they always wanted it to be us. And then, uh, as I say, we took the company public and we uh, we had a rogue trader actually from the South uh, and he cost us like half a year's profit in one night. And from that point on, we were sort of scrambling to get the company refinanced as Nobody wanted to invest or lend money to any financial business, um, but we made it through to the other side. Uh, and I guess probably the hardest part of that was dealing with rating agencies who you know, had the power, uh, you know, had, there was a sword over your head. And um, if you did anything to upset them or to impair their view of your financial wherewithal, um, they would, uh, you know, they could put you out of business, basically. Um, and th those were, you know, that was a group of people that I'd never come into contact before in my, my years leading up to that. And it was a far cry from being a runner at the Chicago Board of Trade. Yeah, most certainly. <laughs> Gosh. Well, tell me, you, you've had some great mentors along the way, some great stories. You, you moved um, Chicago, London, uh, worked back here again in the States. Um, and eventually you made the transition into a completely different direction, um, the nonprofit, and you created First Workings. Um, explain to me how First Working operates. How do you find young people and what are the opportunities you offer to them? Um, and how have those opportunities evolved really in light of this pandemic that we've gone through over the past year? Right. Well, the way we get uh, young people is we work with schools who are, I want to say, obsessed with excellence. So we choose schools where almost all the students go to college and where, you know, they're quite strict, almost in an old-fashioned British sense, um, where there's, you know, you get demerits for not dressing properly or for being rude to your teacher. 
you know, all the things that you read don't happen in public schools. Um, we typically work with what they call charter schools. I'm not sure if you have those in, in Texas, but uh, the advantage of charter schools is that you have a very involved parents. And the most important ingredient to a successful school uh, isn't just great teachers and, and decent funding, it's parents who are involved. And in order to get a, a kid into a charter school, you have to enter, enter into a lottery process. And the sort of parent that goes through that effort is gonna be um, the sort of parent that's involved with the school. And involvement isn't just you know, being involved with the PTA. Involvement is making sure that your kids do their homework, that they get to school on time, that they're respectful for te to teachers. And so that sort of kid is more likely than not to be uh, successful in an internship or, uh, as we did last summer, a mentorship. The, the other thing is that because we work with uh, very often first-generation kids of uh, immigrants, it's not surprising uh, that people who come to this country are desperate to succeed, desperate to live the American dream. And so what we find is not only kids who are committed to their studies, uh, polite um, and um, you know, very ambitious, uh, these are kids who are determined to, to become successful, determined to go to a good college and determined to uh, improve the circumstances um, that they live in. So once we've, we've found those sorts of schools, we ask the schools to pick students that they think would be appropriate for an internship. We then have a recruitment process, which involves the kids applying through an online application uh, and it's not a very onerous one, but what it seeks to do is to learn a little, a little bit about the kids. Um, we then choose a, a number of kids, probably 75% of the kids that apply um, for an interview, and then 75% of the kids that we interview make it into the program. We then uh, figure out what are the businesses that they want to go into, and then we set about finding companies who provide uh, in those industries and ones which are interested in providing internships. Um, one of the things that we find is that many, many kids that we deal with really don't know what finance is. They've never heard of companies like Morgan Stanley um, or uh, some of the sort of iconic names on Wall Street, but which they've never heard of. So a STEM student, a kid who's very strong in STEM, uh, will typically say they want to go into medicine because very often um, the most stable person in their lives is the doctor or uh, medical professional that they encounter. Uh, and because, again, um, for people who are immigrants, uh, very often they like the idea of their kids being doctors because it's a transportable skill. And so if they end up having to leave or to move, uh, if they're a doctor. So what we say to these kids is, look, you know, the medical profession is always going to be there. Have you considered a career in finance? And if they're very strong in math or very strong in physics, for example, those today are exactly the sorts of skills that are very highly valued on Wall Street. Why is that? 
because so much of Wall Street is now transferred uh, to electro electronic platforms, very, you know, typically called fintech. Um, and then we prepare the kids um, with lots of training, even uh, as a result of um, the pandemic, a great deal more training than we were able to give them before, because obviously the kids are all proficient with Zoom. Um, and once that process is complete, we either send them on an internship, which is what we've done for most of the years that we've been in operation. And then we uh, provide them with appropriate uh, clothing. If it's a young kid who's going to go and work at an investment bank, needs suits or uh, the appropriate um, uh, ladies wear. Um, you know, in some places that we work with, like law firms, they even uh, have rules about the sort of shoes that they're allowed to wear. And so um, we prepare them with that. We also give them a metro card, which is um, means that they can afford to get back and forth to work from their homes um, because they're not going to get paid till the end of the internship. And we want to make sure that they can afford to get back and forth. And we also give the kids prepaid visa cards equivalent to $20 a day. And why is that? It's because uh, obviously we want them to be able to, get to uh, afford to have lunch. But more crucially, we want them to be able to go out with co-workers. If a co-worker says, hey, you know, a few of us are going to go for a coffee or a few of us are going to go and grab a sandwich together, um, we want the kids to be able to do that because that equates or that supports our principal ambition, which is to give the kids social capital, um, to give them the opportunity yep. to make relationships that they'll be able to use for the rest of their lives. At the end of the internship, uh, we ask that uh, a very senior person in the organization, very often the CEO, um, has an exit interview with the kids where they have a chance to ask them you know, what was their own career path? Um, what college did, did they go to? At what stage did they make their career choices? And in many instances, that conversation is the beginning of a relationship which is enduring. And very often, it's a conversation uh, which could result in um, letters of recommendation. So take, a, for example, a kid from Harlem or the Bronx, which are two um, historically underserved, underserved parts of the city of New York. Um, if you're uh, at a university and you're an admissions officer and you see a kid from Harlem or the Bronx having worked at a Morgan Stanley or a major law firm, um, or NASDAQ, you say, hey, wait a minute, who is this kid? How did he manage to get this? And if it's accompanied by a letter of recommendation from a senior person there, sometimes that senior person has a strong relationship with the college choice. Um, it makes it easier for them to get into college. Uh, about 15 to 20% mm -hmm. of the kids we work with end up at Ivy League schools, and uh, a very significant percentage, probably 75%, go to top 50 colleges. And as of this past year, we've, we've had kids who've got into every single Ivy League in the United States. Um, and then we, wow. we tend to uh, try and maintain the relationship whilst they're at college and beyond. Um, one of the uh, hidden truths about first-generation uh, kids who get into college is that 
a very significant number don't actually make it to graduation. So you'll hear institutions like Harvard say, oh, you know, we'll accept uh, any, we'll, we'll give a free ride to any kid who gets into school who comes from a, a household earning less than $100,000 a year. But what they won't tell you is how many of those kids actually make it to graduation. And there are many, many reasons why kids from these communities get alienated quite, quite quickly. Um, and many kids don't actually make it through the first year. So it's our ambition to work with those kids and give them the support um, that they need to make it through that year and, and beyond. That's amazing. The The data there you shared was uh, incredible. And you hit on something that was, was interesting. You mentioned the giving them the metro cars so they can have that reliable transportation. Um, and then also the prepaid um, visa cards also. And not just for, you know, they can grab lunch during the day because they won't be at home or won't be at school, but uh, that that extra experience of being around other colleagues, whether it uh, be their superiors or whether it's someone in the program with them in the internship program, building social capital. Um, sounds like it's a critical element really to what First Working's mission is, like you mentioned. How do you define the social capital? How was it instrumental in your own success? Um, and why especially, why is it especially critical that young people from all backgrounds and upbringings develop something like this social capital? Well, um, I mean, social capital, uh, very simply, is a network of relationships and connections um, which help you get jobs, uh, help you get into good colleges, um, and sort of help you through your career. Um, so if you're a, a middle class or upper middle class or upper class kid uh, and your, your parents are in the legal profession, uh, for example, even if your kid wants to go into advertising or pharmaceuticals, you may not be in those businesses yourself, but you'll know someone who knows someone in that business. And so that's social capital. If you come from an underserved community where kids, um, parents just don't have those connections, um, the, the likelihood of you ending up in a, in some of these businesses in front office roles. And I should tell you, just to backtrack a little bit, that we only accept internships where the kid is going to be in the main event. So we wouldn't, for example, accept an internship um, from a, uh, a company that was offering a job or uh, an experience in the back office or in uh, just photocopying or getting the coffee. Of course, there is some element of that in any internship. But we want them to yeah. feel that they, that to, to coin a phrase, that they belong in the room. Uh, and we've sent uh, some incredibly uh, bright kids to uh, investment banks. And, um, you know, at first, uh, these kids find themselves as the only kids of color. Because um, uh, as I, I should have pointed out, um, I think 95% plus of the kids we work with are of color. Um, and they'll be the only kid in the only person in the room who isn't white. And at first they might think, oh my gosh, you know, I, I don't really belong here. But by the time they get to the end of the internship, they realize that they absolutely have a place and they can compete in those, in those sorts of uh, businesses. 
Um, so in addition to social capital, it's about broadening horizons. It's about showing kids that there's more than just going into the medical profession. Some kids say they want to be lawyers uh, and their vision of a lawyer is something they've seen on TV. They think it's all about the courtroom uh, and they don't understand that that's probably the smallest part of, of being a lawyer. There's um, all the right. research and work that goes into um, appearing in court uh, or negotiating contracts and that kind of stuff. And we've had some amazing experiences with kids going to all of these professions. Now, this past summer, we realized back in March that internships simply weren't going to be an option. Uh, and we went fully remote in uh, middle of March. We told the kids that it was going to be mentorships instead. And because senior executives were all working from home, we were able to connect our kids with much higher level executives than they would otherwise have worked with. All of this was taking place against the backdrop of the uh, Black Lives Matter protests. So we were pushing open doors to get these, in, the, these mentorships. And many of those mentors, uh, I would say the majority of them, have retained a relationship with the kid well past the mentorship. Almost all of them have given a letters of recommendation. And actually, there's been a, a, you know, a couple of stories um, where the kids have actually been asked to be an intern in addition to the mentorship. I should also tell you that what we did was we uh, paid the kids up to $500 in a stipend, and that money was dependent upon their engagement with the training, their uh, engagement with their mentor um, and the average payout for the kids that we work with was $480, which shows you just how committed they were. The other advantage, of course, yep. this summer uh, that we had um, or that the kids have working with us was that we created a community. And of course, if you're cooped up in a small apartment, you know, sharing a room with, you know, a number of siblings and you're hearing sirens going off all the time outside and um, there were fireworks for reasons that no one actually knows there were fireworks going off every night um, and of course um, they may have had relatives that um, were suffering from COVID even uh, sadly dying from COVID we created a community for these kids we created structure for these kids and we also provided mental health check-ins uh, with social workers, because the kids we were working with were going through very difficult times. Um, and, you know, when you live in a place where you've got a garden or where there's ample outdoor space, um, it's a hell of a lot easier than if you are stuck in a small apartment, in a tower block or in a project. Um, and so the kids... We made a great deal of effort to uh, mix different kids from different schools. So in addition to any social capital they achieved from the, the mentor they worked with, they also got social capital by building relationships amongst each other. Uh, I, if you want, I could tell you one great story. Um, we uh, set up a, a young lady from Harlem with a private equity company 
And private equity is a business where funds will seek out small businesses um, which they think are going to be big and they invest money in them. Now, this particular private equity company specialized in women's healthcare and beauty products. And uh, the uh, guy who was actually the principal of the company, the company was called Mid-Ocean Partners, um, asked her, say, find me a business that we could invest in. And you know, she came back and said, oh, L'Oreal. And he said, no, 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 L'Oreal, it's a sort of global business. We can't buy that. He said, tell me a product that all your friends use. And she came, she thought about it, and she said, hairnets. All my friends use hairnets. So he said, go find a business in that. Go find a company in that business. So off she goes and does some research, and she finds this business which was run by two uh, women of color. And he says, well, go get in touch with them. Find out, you know, what's their financial situation? Are they looking for funding? So she gets in touch with them. She manages to track down the CEO. And it turned out that they were in the middle of a funding process. So uh, he said, well, okay, I want you to present to all the other partners uh, on a Zoom call and why this is a company we should look at. So she goes off. Uh, she prepares a presentation, which was exceptional, uh, which wowed all these high-powered partners. And they said, listen, uh, let's do due diligence with a view to investing in the company. Now, that due diligence is still going on right now. Um, and one of the arrangements at this company is that anybody who brings a deal to the table that they invest in automatically gets a $100,000 bonus. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> uh, that's my dog. Anyhow, so so he got, she goes off, does this amazing presentation. They do the due diligence, um, which could lead to uh, her getting $100,000. Well, obviously, um, giving a 17-year-old 100000 bucks would not be um, a very good idea. So the plan is that if um, and possibly when they do do an investment, um, They'll put $100,000 in an educational trust for her, which for the kids that we work with is beyond gold dust. It, it's, it's nirvana. And so that's, and of course, they'll have a relationship forever. Um, one other one I quickly want to tell you is the chairman of Lazard, which is one of the world's preeminent investment banks. He loved the, the mentee that he worked with. And uh, she was going to apply to, um, you know, a fairly inauspicious college. And he said, no, 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 you've got to apply to Penn. You belong at a university like Penn, which, as you know, is an Ivy League school. And he wrote her the most glowing letter of recommendation. It couldn't have been a better one. And she was accepted early decision with full funding. And she starts there, you know, in uh, September. Gosh. That's amazing. What an incredible story. And I love that it was really uh, application based. It wasn't just, uh, like you said, a back office job. It was it was in the main event. And uh, she was tasked with doing something that she found interesting, but also uh, personally was interested in as well and had that attachment. I should tell you, she had no yeah. idea what a private equity company was before we explained what it was. And like many of the kids that we uh, took, we we uh, talked to her first choice was medicine yeah exactly um and it's interesting that you you mentioned that note before uh, a lot of the 
the first generation immigrants immigrants coming over and uh, focusing on STEM and really going into the medical field um, just because it is transportable. I can totally understand that and see that. Um, so it's great to see y'all shifting them towards more of the finance, um, more of the um, electronic platforms, like you said, fintech. Um, so this experience in particular, what an amazing story. And I know it's not the only one. Um, it's probably the first one that came to mind. And if we had more time, we could probably just write a book about it. Um, right. So maybe that's maybe that's in, in works already, Kevin. I don't know. But first of all, I have to write a book about my career. Um, and um, since some of the events are now tw getting on for 20 years old, 9-11 uh, and my um, experience uh, with Enron uh, as they went um, sadly bust, um, those are probably the stories which are uh, um, most exciting, uh, I would say. Um, one of the reasons that I did this was uh, because having been in, in Wall Street and, and finance my entire career, uh, I did, you know, the, it was only, the only sort of uh, trace that I'd been on earth was a bunch of numbers that no one would be interested in in years to come and my children. So I wanted to do something which had a lasting impact on the society from which I myself um, had uh, benefited so enormously. And so if I, if I see these kids getting on and having fabulous careers, um, that in and of itself uh, will be the mark that I leave. It's amazing. Um, and kind of takes me to our next point here. Um, the mentorship relationship isn't just for uh, the mentee, uh, the, the student that you're setting up um, and helping groom a little bit. It's, it's for everyone. It's for the mentor as well. Um, you mentioned having learned from, from mentors in the past and maybe from a boss, you, you got to learn more from their failures than some of their successes. And um, curious, let's, let's hear how the mentorship really uh, benefits all who take part um, and why it's so important for companies to foster these connections while your students are, are still in high school, maybe not well, even into the first year, second year of college. There's a great deal, there's a big diversity issue in many companies, particularly on Wall Street, which is um, very white um, and typically dominated by men. Um, and so these companies are keen to make relationships with kids um, and follow them through college so that they get a chance to hire um, a, a much broader part of the population. You know, Customer-facing businesses, which most financial companies are, um, they're going to be confronted with populations which in not very many years will be about 40% of color. And so uh, they need to have uh, members of staff who are themselves from diverse communities. And actually, uh, there's quite a lot of research that says the more diverse a company is, the higher their profitability is next to their peers. So they have an incentive for it. Now, this summer in particular, because of the uh, Black Lives Matter protests and because of the increased awareness of diversity issues, um, you had companies who were really anxious to play their part in, um, in, in, in improving um, the circumstances and improving 
um, the diversity within their companies. And they welcomed these mentorships. Now, in the normal course, without uh, the pandemic, they would have been uh, internships. And as I said, the kids wouldn't have had a chance to constantly interact with very senior people. Um, but the other thing, of course, that we managed to put in place was extensive training. And Zoom was the key to that. Um, as I said, the kids were all familiar with Zoom because they'd been doing their classes on Zoom. The schools that we worked with, although they were public and charter schools, um, they managed to uh, adapt to Zoom very, very quickly. They didn't have the issues that you read about um, with connectivity uh, or issues um, with attendance or comprehension and all the other different things. So we were working with this population that was familiar with Zoom, that was uh, very anxious and, uh, I guess, fertile ground um, for um, ambitious people, ambitious young people. Um, and it was much easier than it would normally have been. And I mean, some of the courses that we arranged for the kids, I think one of my favorites was financial literacy. And Goldman Sachs very kindly um, put together an incredible financial literacy uh, presentation, which they themselves gave to the kids. And they learned things that, frankly, we should all have learned at school and none of us were. I mean, one thing, for example, is I had no idea that when you get a credit card, if you spend more than 30% of your credit limit, uh, you automatically get a black mark or a, a downgrade. Um, if you use your credit facility uh, at least uh, once in the first six months you have the card, again, it's a negative point against your credit rating. So for the first six months, you absolutely have to pay your card down to zero, regardless of um, the amount of uh, credit facility that you have. Um, also, early stage investing. Uh, you know, if a kid starts putting $100 a month uh, into the stock market and assuming that they have a 30 or 40 year career, by the time they get to the end of that career, assuming they put in a little bit more as their earnings go up, um, that will equate to tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. So teaching kids these th lessons, teaching kids about budgeting, teaching things about how you acquire good credit. Let's face it, there's virtually nothing you do in life that doesn't involve having good credit, getting a mortgage, buying a car, uh, getting a credit card, in fact, buying anything which involves credit, getting a store card, people... Uh, will immediately go and check what your credit rating is, and then they'll make a determination as to whether you get credit, or if you do, the interest rate they're going to charge you. So these are lessons. Right. Um, you know, other things in how to conduct yourself on Zoom, how to have appropriate lighting. Also, we gave, gave lessons in um, one of the great uh, um, courses we provided, or I should say um, uh, interactive sessions, was how to negotiate your first pay, which I mean, again, I mean, I had no idea about that when I was starting. And I think that most young people who start are probably underpaid, and um, or I certainly was. And um, you, uh, you know, you learn little tricks that, again, we, I wish we'd been taught at school. 
Um, I certainly got, would have got a lot yeah, more out of that than learning trigonomics or trigonometry, sorry, um, and various other skills which I have never used in my entire life, most certainly not on Wall Street. <laughs> most certainly. Um, always continue learning um, and sharpening yourselves. And, um, you know, these internships and mentorships allow both student and uh the guide to both sharpen themselves, learn right. something new. You're always learning and you're always. Learning. So um, again, it's the younger generation coming up as well, learning new things, helping us uh, sharpen what we do. For right. example, Zoom. I mean, we've been forced to all sorts of new technologies that maybe we didn't start our careers out with. It's funny you should mention that Zoom. I remember when uh, my company put our first video conferencing facilities in so that the New York office could talk to the Chicago office in London. It cost a million dollars. Today, you can sign up with wow. Zoom uh, for free. Um, and uh, yeah, unthinkable that you could do something like that <laughs> when I started my career. So. Yeah, now people are having conversations at 9 o'clock uh, here in Texas and 7 a.m. over there in, in Bangladesh. So, right. um, you know, we're so connected so easily. And, um, yeah, having the, the, the know-with-all on how to conduct yourself on videos as a young professional just getting started, um, you know, you don't have the experience you need to learn. So what better way than to help put them in these situations early and often um, and continue to teach along the way to make sure that they're ready for that and um, other things like financial literacy, um, you know, these, these folks are going through the STEM program and taking, uh, you know, science and physics and mathematics and, um, you know, what better course than to take financial literacy to couple all that together. So, um, gosh, 2020 has, has taught us a lot. Um, one thing in particular, obviously, that you touched on is remaining nimble and continuing to adapt. Um, as we look forward to 2021 and you you somewhat touched on this earlier, um, companies may put the internship program on the back burner, or they may not give it as much effort as years past. It sounds like y'all are really pivoting and being nimble and adapting and creating these mentorship programs. Um, some people are really excited to get back in the office. Some people aren't. In your conversations, Kevin, uh, with decision makers out there in these different uh, corporations, why is it still so critical that they maintain some form of a junior development program? And how does in-person versus remote work impact these students? Well, uh, in-person is better because you do tend to build um, deeper relationships. One of the reasons why Zoom has been so successful in 2020 is that we tend to interact with people we already know. And so uh, it, if I'm... Zooming with someone I've been sitting next to for the part uh, for the past uh, two three years, it's not so hard to transition to Zoom. But if you get hired on Zoom uh, and you've never met the person in person, you've never had the chance to have those you know those those conversations where you're not talking about work, where you're talking about your families or what you did this weekend. Um, it's much more difficult to establish a strong relationship. For the companies, their incentive uh, to have uh, at least a mentorship program is that um, they're building the pipeline of talent for their future. 
So it's critical for companies to continue with this. I, as I said, I don't think many companies will be taking high school interns. Um, I'm not even sure if they'll be taking, um, I want to say normal interns, a typical intern, who would be uh, a kid between their junior and senior year at college um, and who, you know, some high percentage of whom will end up getting jobs. Actually, that's a, another point uh, of the issue is that almost every intern that we hired, if not all, were the uh, children of customers, staff, counterparties, people we knew in the business. And because all those people were white, um, and because they were all middle and upper middle class, they tended to all look the same, have the same personality and bring the same things to the company. Um, uh, when you uh, reach out to communities uh, which are different, uh, the kids bring different experiences, different perceptions. Uh, and so for a company, it's uh, a chance for them to expand the sorts of people and the sorts of experiences and the sorts of knowledge that they otherwise just wouldn't have access to. Uh, well, it's been uh, amazing to unpack all of this with you, Kevin, and, and bring light to what I have personally overlooked. Um, and I'm sure a lot of other companies, as we mentioned here, may have said, okay, this is something we can put on the back burner. But it, it's it's proven to be impactful, not just for uh, the mentees and the interns, uh, but also for those that are mentoring and teaching. Um, so, uh, it's, it's been a pleasure speaking with you on that, Kevin, um, and unpacking that and learning about you along the way, too, and what you've done before, how you became successful in that, and how you use that uh, to continue doing great things with, with new generations going forward. Um, I like to end our podcast episodes with something fun, something impactful. Um, so I know I gave you some preparation here, uh, so I didn't put you on the spot, but I'd love to hear a quote. Um, that you that has really stuck with you uh, maybe throughout the years or something recently that really impacted you. And it could be professional or, or personal, but uh, let's end it with your favorite quote, maybe what it means to you. Well, I guess my favorite quote came from my grandfather uh, who, who taught me that uh, you should never chase an horizon beyond the one you can see. And so what does that mean for me? It's that when it, a kid is starting out in business, they shouldn't be thinking, oh, you know, I want to be a, a multimillionaire with a, a corporate jet and a, a multiple houses and boats. They need to focus on what's their mission right now. What do they have to do to be successful to get to the next stage? And as they get to that next stage, there'll be a new horizon. And that's the horizon that they chase. Um, and so it's not about the day after tomorrow or the day after that. It's about today and making sure you're successful in your job today. Um, one other thing I would say is that as you go up uh, the corporate ladder, it's so important to give your staff all the credit for success because there is nothing worse than hearing someone taking credit for uh, the effort and work of the people who work for them and being sort of me, 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 me. So um, I think that's a really crucial lesson that people just don't know about. Gosh, yeah, both of those impactful. 
um, and building a culture, building a team. Um, it sounds like you, you've done that plenty of times and, uh, I'm glad that that sticks out as something to share and certainly enjoy your grandfather's quote, um, and really focusing on those steps. Um, if you can achieve step one, you can go to step two. Um, think about where you'd like to be, but, um, you know, make sure you're going and doing the, the little things along the way to build the foundation to get to that point. So, um, yeah, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure speaking with you and learning about um, first workings and how you're impacting the kids and building futures with them and with these these big companies that are making a really big difference in the world, a really big impact. So, Kevin, thank you. Any last words here before we sign off? Well, no, thank you. And, you know, one day I would love to come to Dallas and uh, create the model there. Um, and, you know, our next step, funnily enough, is in London, where we're hoping to go live next summer. Um, and we were in the process of setting up in L.A. before the pandemic hit. So um, I believe that what we do is very transportable, very replicable. And I would very much look forward to meeting you in Dallas and discussing how we can do it there. Likewise, Kevin. Well, Dallas, we've got a we've got an open door policy here, uh, so you can always come in, and um, we can explore and we can network together as well. I know there's a lot of really good things happening here in the city, a lot of big companies as well that you've seen moving headquarters here as well. So plenty of opportunity and plenty of of kids that need some guidance um, and could could really benefit from that. So. Yeah, we'll certainly uh, be in touch here and see what we can continue to do and impact with. But uh, Kevin, thank you again for your time. And ladies and gentlemen, Kevin Davis, first working. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Take care.